We note the passing today of longtime Cuyahoga County Sheriff Gerald McFall, one of the miscreants of the huge county corruption back in the 2008-2009 era, and an example of why the kind of journalism we do at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer is so important. It was work by reporter Mark Puente that unveiled all of the corrupt ways Mr. McFall was taking advantage of taxpayers. He ultimately got convicted of crimes and had to resign in disgrace. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Leila Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Lisa is raring to talk about whether or not we should keep daylight savings time. We'll get to that in a minute. We have a story about what it would mean in Cleveland. Let's begin. Why did the Ohio Supreme Court dismiss all legal challenges to the congressional redistricting in Ohio last week? And how did the people who brought the cases respond on Monday? Layla, this is complicated and technical, but it's important. (laughs) Yeah, we were trying to iron out the technicalities right before we pushed record here. But so two two cases brought by a group of Ohioans represented by the National Redistricting uh, Action Fund and by the League of Women Voters asked the court to stop the state from using the congressional maps that were most recently passed by the redistricting commission. But the court on Friday unanimously denied the request. Chris, you'll have to help me with this one. But apparently a technicality with the way the congressional amendment was written required the meant that the court didn't retain jurisdiction in the case and they had to dismiss it. Chris, can you kick in any further detail on, well, on that? Well, uh, yeah, what 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 I think happened is they they realized this after considering these challenges for weeks and weeks. Yeah, weeks. it was a long I think time. There was a moment, <laughs> yeah, there was a moment last week where it was like, oh. We don't have jurisdiction. We have to dismiss this. They'll have to refile. It was, you know, it was one of those Friday night dump the trash things that came out. And it's like, what? Wait, what? How does that I work? Mean, in their defense, uh, there I, were a lot of moving parts going, you know, in the last yeah. couple months here. They had a lot. Keep well, track of a lot. <laughs> to their credit, they are trying to do the right thing. And they realized they didn't have jurisdiction. So they tossed it. So what yeah, happened? So, that, what happened? But next? so the court noted in its ruling Friday that 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 their their ruling doesn't mean the parties can't file a lawsuit to challenge the plan that was approved on March 2nd. So on Monday, uh, a National Democratic redistricting group did exactly that. The National Democratic Redistricting Committee, led by Eric Holder, the former Obama-era U.S. Attorney General, filed the new lawsuit with the Supreme Court, once again contending that the congressional map that Republicans passed on March 2nd was illegally gerrymandered in favor of Republicans under Ohio's new redistricting rules. And the, the arguments were really similar or identical to the complaint that they filed on March 4th. The lawyers for the group also asked the court to set an expedited schedule for considering the written arguments for and against the congressional map. The final written briefs would be due on March 30th, which is a few days before ballots have to be sent to military voters under a revised deadline that state officials negotiated with the federal government last week. Well, they're going to have to postpone the election. There's no way they're going to be ready for that. I bet this stuff just gets pushed. We'll have a primary in July or something. Uh, because clearly the, the congressional maps continue to be seriously gerrymandered. These don't fit. The Supreme Court's not going to stand for it. They're going to kick them back. And then we'll be moving on. It's Today in Ohio. 
Does the Ohio Supreme Court have the power to unilaterally delay the May 3rd primary election because we don't know where the legislative and congressional district lines are yet? Lisa, we just talked about all the complications about not having the lines, but now we have somebody that wants the Supreme Court to step in and deal with the election. It's not clear whether the court has the authority, but the Democrats on the redistricting committing committee seem to think that the court does have that power. Um, Allison Russo and uh, Senator Vernon Sykes asked in a letter to the Ohio Supreme Court to move the election to June 28th. And of course, that affects all kinds of other things going on in the background that will definitely have an impact on that GOP activist suit that's calling for a federal judge to adopt the rejected maps because time is running out for the May 3rd primary. Um, Yeah. You know, the argue the Dems in their letter argued that the Supreme Court does have the authority to change the date, but the GOP authority majority in the legislature, because it's the legislature that can change the election date. But we know the GOP majority has refused to do so. So what is the next, you know, uh, remedy there? I don't know. I think the court has been pretty clear that that expects the legislature to deal with the election date and that. They don't want to overstep. I don't know that there's anything in the constitutional amendments that give them that ability. It's interesting, too, that the Democrats filed this because every time the court issues an order, it's been saying now, no more filings. Don't file anything (laughs) unless we ask you to. And this seems to go around that don't file anything unless we ask you to order. Uh, We'll have to see what they do with that. There's so much before the Ohio Supreme Court right now. Uh, It must be, I would love to be a fly on the wall as they go back and forth. Because in the background, of course, you have two of the justices fighting to be the next chief justice. And all of this posturing is partly to win voter approval. And also, apparently, some GOP House members are floating the idea of impeaching Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, who has sided with the the liberal justices on this Yeah, I don't, I think that that's not, none of them, they're also cowardly. They won't put their name behind it. So they're whispering that. They've been whispering it for months, hoping somebody would bite. The Cincinnati Inquirer finally bit, even though you can't find real names in their story. So I, I just I'd be shocked if somebody stood up and said, yes, I'm going to lead this charge. And a bunch of people would sign on because I think it would lead to just a bigger constitutional crisis. She hasn't done anything wrong. It's, you know, she's mm-hmm. she's making rulings based on sound legal judgment that you can debate, but you, you're going to impeach her for doing her job. I just don't see it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How late would the sun come up on the latest day of the year if we kept daylight savings time year round? Laura, we just started wondering what it would mean. And we asked a reporter to find out what's the answer for Northeast Ohio. It would be almost 9 a.m. before sunrise if this happened. The latest would be during the first week of January, right around the end of the year, obviously, when we know it's the darkest, and it would be 8.54 a.m. during that period. The good news is that we wouldn't be dark as quickly that instead of night starting around 5 p.m., it wouldn't start till 6 p.m. Yeah, I know. That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Lisa? I am a standard time girl, I'm telling you. If we're going to pick one, it should be standard time because time time is standard. I mean, it's not a construct. I mean, come on. And yeah, I mean, and 
I did, you know, find a great article on CNN a few days ago, and they talked about how daylight savings time was made permanent a couple of times in our history, but it was rescinded. The first time it was made permanent was during World War II, and then it got rescinded in 1945, and then during the winter of 1973-74, daylight savings time was also made permanent because of the energy crisis back then. So they've tried it before, and it hasn't stuck. You know, our time-keeping system is all relative. Our calendar is so screwed up that we have to have a leap day every year to make up for all the hours we're not accounting for. Why not split the difference? Why not change the clock to the 30s? So oh my that gosh. You, you that wouldn't it, be confusing at all. Well, it, it would split the difference. Look, I can live with 9 o'clock because, let's face it, the, the you start to see light a good half hour before and having the sun stay up an extra hour at the end of the day. That's my favorite day of the year. But yeah, I got to say, it, it's not like you have a lot of free time before you start work in the morning, right? So it's so nice to be able to have what feels like a longer evening. I, I was driving home on Sunday from the ski hill, last day of the ski season, and it was 5 o'clock and the sun was super bright. And I was like, I feel like I have hours before the end of the day. And it was just so yeah, nice. Yeah, and it, when, but, when, when, you're, when you're getting up before the sun, you feel like a real go-getter, so if you're if you're up at eight thirty and it's still like the pre sunrise, you're like you're the early bird. Oh my, oh my god! Yeah, but then Laura and Layla, your kids will be standing waiting for the bus in the dark at seven thirty. Yeah, that or doesn't whatever. bother me. No problem. No problem with that at all. all I gotta right, say, so- I actually lived in Indiana for a year, um, and they didn't change, and it would get really confusing because you're like, are we on Ohio time? Are we on Illinois? time so I, I don't i would not suggest just choosing not to change which arizona and hawaii still do and you do wonder if we do this what does canada do you know i mean we share all of the same time zones with them i think it does pose some interesting issues this wouldn't come in effect until at least 2023 so we'd have some time to figure it out but Still. Spoken like a true Canadian native. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard anybody say, what is Canada going to do? Well, <laughs> it's it. legit. I mean, <laughs> Mexico, too. I we, it, it goes all the way up and down. It's not like it's just in this country. Well, and plus, okay. I believe I, I believe Rubio's bill is saying that states can choose to opt out. So if you have different states choosing oh different gosh. times, that's a real mess. But they've done that. Arizona has not uh, g- agreed to the time or it didn't when I was out there. There are states that have pulled right. Up Arizona, before. Hawaii right now do not uh, yeah. change. Indiana and, has come along. And the world doesn't end because some states are out of sync. And, and, and parts of states think about like Florida has two different time zones in it. Are you in the you know, the central or the eastern, and part of Indiana goes with Illinois and part goes with Ohio, so they figure it out. But, yeah, it's it's confusing. Is, like, I love Layla's take on this, that it'll turn everybody <laughs> into a go-getter because they're getting up when it's dark outside. That's the best perspective yet. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the barriers that keep black and rural Americans off organ transplant waiting lists, and what is to be done about it? Layla, Julie Washington put this story together based on some recent studies and talks. What did she find? Well, so she she uh, uh, found this new report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine showed that African Americans are three times more likely to suffer from kidney failure than white Americans, and yet they're substantially less likely to be placed on transplant wait lists or ultimately to get an organ transplant. 
the transplant report recommended eliminating race from clinical equations used in in, in allocating organs. Race-based thresholds for estimating kidney function can underestimate the severity of the disease in African-American patients. That's really astounding. This, this makes them less likely to get the needed specialty care or be placed on transplant, transplant wait lists in a timely manner, apparently. Patients living in rural areas or, or who are unable to easily access specialists also have a really difficult time connecting with the organ transplant system. So those who miss appointments, who skip medications or cancel appointments due to a lack of health care or transportation are often labeled non-compliant and, and turn out, you know, they're, they're labeled a poor candidate for the transplant. Transplant, transplant list as well. So creating a more equitable system would require increasing the number of organs transplanted annually, reducing the number of donated organs that aren't used, and of course, you know, finding ways to um, to get more, to, to put more uh, African Americans on that transplant list. Um, you know, I one of the things that really surprised me about this was how many organs go unused. Julie reported that yeah. about one in five kidneys from deceased donors are are not used. Um, that was just just not used or not usable. I think some of them were not usable. Well, they said not used, and they said rejected mm-hmm. organs often come from a less than optimal donor. An optimal mm-hmm. donor is, is someone who's younger and free of underlying health issues. And according to her reporting, it, it might be better for an older patient with comorbidities to take a less than optimal organ early rather than wait forever until they can't t- tolerate a transplant at all. <laughs> and so well, that was a very was interesting. She- I had never contemplated that before. When she had the number in there of people who die every day while waiting for yeah, organ transplant, like something yeah, it was like yeah, very six, four, fourteen or seventeen. Yeah. It's a lot of people dying, and and that that makes that unused organ issue all the more acute. So uh, it's good stuff to to read. But I you know I can kind of understand why it would be harder for people in rural places to get the help because they're just not near the centers of medicine but i the the whole idea that people living in the cleveland area can't get on the transplant list or or fall off it is ridiculous right because the clinic did what a thousand transplants last year or something Mm -hmm. like that okay you're listening to today in ohio what has happened to all of the downtown Cleveland coffee shops? Is Cleveland going caffeine-free? Lisa, I think this is more a tale of the downtown workforce shrinking, despite what downtown workforce advocates would have you believe. I think it's a little of that, and I also think it's a little bit of right-sizing, too. I mean, Starbucks closed three locations, but they still have a couple downtown. They closed the ones in Key Tower, Tower City, and at 200 Public Square. And then a local chain, Joe Max Coffee Company, and the southwest corner of Public Square, they closed during the pandemic in July 2020. And owner Jean Caparso says, you know, she just hasn't been able to reopen because of staffing issues. And she did mention fewer downtown workers. She actually said... And I quote, it still feels changed down here in downtown. And she said, you know, uh, there are fewer guests at the Renaissance Hotel, which they got a lot of their business from the hotel while they were open. They still have locations at Cleveland State further down the road, still downtown, and one in Brecksville, and they're doing okay. But yeah, as you said, Chris, the Downtown Cleveland Alliance is like, ah, there's still a hundred restaurants and coffee shops you can go to. And they say that foot traffic 
they measured foot traffic for January. They said that uh, it was 3.5 million, but it was 5.2 million in 2020 just before the pandemic shut down. Yeah, I always trip over that. I mean, are they really counting 3.2 million people or is there some formula they use? Look, that that Starbucks that was in Key Tower was there for a long time. And I'd go there when I was a reporter and as an editor. It's a great place to meet people that wanted to chat. And you always waited in line. I mean, it was always busy. The fact that they decided to end that tells me that they just don't they, they lost the traffic during the pandemic and didn't see a reason to continue if the demand was there they'd still be open and the fact that they're closing up shop left and right tells me that there are far fewer downtown workers than yeah but believe. you know starbucks i mean and, and it's famous in houston there are actually two starbucks right across the street from each other you know um so i they do tend to kind of flood the market but like you say they were getting the business so well, the other thing that Starbucks has done, Starbucks loves the, the to-go, drive-up kind of uh, traffic. They get mm-hmm. a lot more business in a suburban shop where people drive in and drive out than they do with a pedestrian shop. And so this just might be part of Starbucks focusing on, on suburban areas. Of course, this all comes at the same time that the workers for Starbucks are seeking to organize in a broad way across Northeast Ohio, and you wonder if that plays into it as mm-hmm. well. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, why is it so hard for people to find lawnmowers? The lawns have started to grow. This is a crisis. <laughs> Maybe it's not a crisis yet. But yes, if you don't have a working lawnmower, then you might want to go buy it now and not wait until your lawn looks like a jungle because they are going to be hard to find. And the reason is just the same as everything else. The supply chain issues, mo- um Mowers are more complicated than they used to be. They require more parts. And so if they don't have one part, then you can't make the full mower. And so they're expecting prices to be about 10% higher this year. And if you need one, you better get on it. Just like boats and paddle boards and cars and everything else. Although I did see good news in this for you, Laura, because as you've mentioned in the past, you're not big on changing the oil in your mower and you have to replace (laughs) it fairly regularly. You can get an electric mower now. The batteries are lasting a lot longer. We have had a battery-powered mower for two years now, and my yard is so big that I mow it in segments. I like mow it in three segments, and I do it on different days sometimes. So I I don't worry about the battery life. It takes me about 20, 25 minutes to do each segment. Segment. So it works out really well for me. And then um, my son, he's 11. Last summer, he mowed our next door neighbor's lawn the entire summer once a week. And I didn't worry about it because, you know, I mean, there's no the gasoline makes it, I think, more dangerous. So he he mowed with a battery powered mower. I was yeah. a big fan. I, I still am surprised that those the battery-powered mowers work this time of the year when the grass is the mm-hmm. thickest because that bogs down even the most powerful You just got to mow it higher. Like, don't put it on the lowest setting or you will be lifting that thing and emptying it, you know, <laughs> every, every row. I've learned that the hard way. All right, but, well. And it's, it, it's everything, though. You know, your, your leaf blowers and your trimmers and everything. And I think... You mentioned that lawn care services are probably going up this year, too, which makes a lot of sense because they got to pay people more. If they have to replace their equipment, it's going to be more expensive. Gasoline is more expensive. So plan to pay a little bit more for your yard work this year. Yeah, if you want to get a mower, get out and get it now. They will be in short supply. It's today in Ohio.
Did the Cleveland International Film Festival back down from its plan to banish the Playhouse Square projectionist from the festival, which, for the first time, is at Playhouse Square this year? Layla, we talked about this last week. We were kind of surprised that they would allow something like this to mar their great reputation. Mm-hmm. Seems like they were worried about that as well. Yeah, it's, it appears that they have reached an agreement. So. To remind listeners about the conflict that was brewing here, the union representatives uh, claimed that that Playhouse Square was was manipulating a loophole in a collective bargaining agreement that brings in IATSE Local 160 workers whenever the Playhouse Square theaters need projectionists. According to the union, Playhouse Square claimed it isn't it wasn't putting on the fest the film festival. It was just letting the film festival use the space and. That did not fly with them. (laughs) But union leaders told Cleveland.com over the weekend that they've reached an agreement, and it dictates that workers from the non-union rental video equipment company hired by the film festival will be the main operators of the equipment, but there will be three union workers on hand to provide technical help throughout the full stretch of the festival, which runs March 30th through April 9th. Those union workers will be paid at their Playhouse Square contract rate, so all parties seem to be satisfied and uh the show goes on (laughs) well every everybody in the northeast ohio legislative delegation sent a letter to the film festival saying hey Mm. you should be talking to them sherrod brown apparently was active in this part of the union's complaint is is that the festival wouldn't even talk to them and they i think they started to feel the pressure of a whole lot of people plus they might have lost ticket sales as a result Mm. because of support so smart move brings peace i'm sure the union isn't completely happy because they would rather staff the whole thing but at least they had the conversation and we will move toward the festival it's today in ohio What are the latest Northeast Ohio businesses to put peace above profits and halt doing business in Russia? Lisa, we ran a story about a few more jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, some big Northeast Ohio players are saying niet to Russia, doing business with Russia. Um, Among them are Eaton, which is not in Cleveland anymore, not headquartered in Cleveland, but they still have a, a huge presence here. They suspended all shipments and new order orders to Russian partners and customers. They do have 100 workers in Russia and the Ukraine. They say they are all safe and accounted for right now. Signet Jewelers, which is based in Fairlawn, that's the parent company of K Jewelers, Jared, Zales, and others. They suspended business with Russian-owned companies, and they won't be buying any Russian mined diamonds. Vitamix from Olmsted Township, they haul all shipments to Russia until further further notice. The law firm of Squire Patton Boggs is closing their Moscow out office until further notice. And then Lincoln Electric, which is headquartered here in Cleveland, they are ceasing operations over there. They say that Russia, though, is one, less than 1% of their global sales. Yeah, it's just the pressure continues on Russia. you got to imagine that life inside that country is getting more and more difficult with a shortage of stuff. When you add that to the already pandemic-inspired supply chain issues, it's got to be pretty bad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What groundbreaking technologies did a Cleveland bioengineering professor discuss with President Joe Biden last week in a bid to set up a new agency to pay for such groundbreaking technologies in the future? Laura? 
This is really cool. This is uh, prosthetics. And Case Western Reserve University professor Dustin Tyler has this technology that lets people with prosthetic hands experience the sense of touch. So he met with Biden, National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins, to show this research and provide advice on setting up a new agency that would fund cutting-edge medical research. research. The idea that Private companies don't have this kind of money to come up with new technologies that really could change healthcare in a lot of different fields. And what? How much money are we talking about? Do you think? Well, we're looking about it was ten million dollars for Tyler's work to do this, and what Congress approved last week included a billion dollars to set up what is called Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, which they're calling ARPA. H, and it's based on the Defense Department's Advanced Research Project Agency, which they called DARPA, and that's who spearheaded Tyler's original work. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, let's talk about Mentoring Monday. It's a big thing for us at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer in Advance, Ohio. It's a big thing for our president, Brad Harmon. Laura, what is it about? This is a great event for professional women in Cleveland to meet each other, to network, to talk about their careers and their struggles and support each other. It's an annual event hosted by Advance Ohio, which obviously includes Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. This year, it's happening in person, which is exciting. It's going to be April 25th in the morning at our offices at 1801 Superior. And mentors are going to lead roundtable discussions with topics like starting and managing your own business. Uh, leadership and the balancing act that women have to perform in the workplace. It's called having it all without dropping the ball. And uh, full disclosure, I am one of the mentors at the event. And we've had quite a few people sign up, right? Yeah, definitely. And we've had really impressive people volunteer to be mentors. We have Marianne Crosley, the president and CEO of the Cleveland Leadership Center, Sherry Madej, a judge at the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas. And a listener to Today in Ohio. Exactly. Um, Janice Contreras, Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Hispanic Center for Economic Development. And we are talking to Yvette Nicole Brown, um, who's from East Cleveland originally. Annie Nikoloff interviewed her. So she's the really cool keynote. Last year we had Dee Haslam. I got to interview her. And I met some really, really impressive people last year. I was like, are you sure that I should be mentoring you? Because I was very impressed (laughs) with them. And it was a lot of women just wanted a space where they could talk to other professionals, especially during COVID. It's been so long since we've had these kind of events that, you know, to lift up support, just to have these discussions is, it's fantastic. How does, how does the mentorship relationships work? Is it, is it like panel discussions or more intimate discussions uh, within that space? This year it will be roundtables with specific topics. So if you want to listen, to, you want to talk to that person, you could go to their table. Or if you want to talk about that topic, you could go there. And then it. last year we did more one-on-one sessions and it was like 10 minutes each. These will be longer and more discussion What, what Laura, what Are, will you be focused on? <laughs> talking about multitasking. There you go. And, and um, you know, motherhood and, and the workplace. I was like, yes, yes, I can yeah. do that topic. That sounds good. That's, what is so, it too late to sign up? Can people still register? You can definitely still register. It's at events.cleveland.com slash mentoring Monday. It's tickets are $49. They include a light breakfast. But if you register by April 5th, you get $15 off using the discount code early bird. So that's for all those people who woke up before dawn, right? <laughs> Layla, <laughs> can I come in my pajamas? <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> as long as they're professional looking pajamas, you know, the kind with the collar. Yeah, it doesn't say anything on the butt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you are listening to Today in Ohio. I want to close it back with what we started with, which is Sheriff Gerald McFall and his passing. Uh, I I want to bring it up because there is an effort once again to make the sheriff elected in Cuyahoga County. And McFall is the poster child for why we don't have an elected sheriff. He was sheriff for 32 years, used his position to raise money illegally uh, and created a fiefdom there. And, you know, I just it's one of those that you don't want to talk ill of the dead, but he is the symbol for what was wrong with our government. And it's something that we should never forget. Right. I agree. He had no law enforcement experience. He wore a suit every day. He never carried a gun. Not that saying you have to carry a gun, but he didn't rise through the ranks. He didn't necessarily know what it took to be in law enforcement. He just was a, he was in city council first, and he had name recognition. He got elected, and he kept getting elected. Well, and he was like a good old boy who befriended journalists, so they really didn't look closely at him. And it took Mark Puente, who did a series of probably, I don't know, 19 stories all, all that he developed from his sources, it was a tour de force of reporting that ended the three-decade career of, of a guy who had largely avoided scrutiny uh, and that was part of the reason for county reform. There are those that say we haven't had good sheriffs in the new era, but that's really a product of the county executive failing to identify quality sheriffs. And if we have a problem with that, we should really be looking at the executive, no? But I think, though, because I've come out before on this on editorial board roundtables, I think you should have an elected sheriff because I think we saw with Armin Budish that the sheriff had no power under him. Budish could, you know, end run around him. And he the sheriff was basically a puppet for the county executive. So in this case, the sheriff was only as good as the county executive was. Right. So we should elect a good county executive instead of creating Mm -hmm. another fiefdom. I don't know. I, I I was stunned to see that sheriff, and I understand. I was not here for the McFall era, so I understand why it was done. But coming from a state that elected sheriffs, like most states do, and most counties, I was like, what? So yeah, I don't know. Layla, a thought? I don't know what the answer to this this problem is because I feel like I mean this might be cynical. I think I think voters might be are more likely to know how to pick a good county executive than to know how to pick a good sheriff. I mean, if I if I'm at the polls, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know what makes a good sheriff or I I would go with name recognition, but but I would probably know more about the candidates for county executive. That would that would register with me better. I don't think that a uh, candidate for sheriff um you know, I I think I don't know. I think I think uh I think we should we should hang with our current form of government a little while longer before pulling out the rug. Right. Let's yeah, get Sally. the county executive that we had in mind when we yeah, changed government right. because we have yet to see that. And the two candidates that look like we'll be running against each other in November, either of them could be that executive. Yep. Laura? I was just going to say, it's not like you elect police chiefs, you know? Right. That would right. be weird. Yeah, it's the same thing. You're right. You gotta get. You have a good. You have to have a strong county executive and and someone who you can count on to to choose the right, the right law enforcement um, chief. Right. Right. But right. police chiefs don't. Yeah, well, and but police chiefs don't oversee county jails and thousands of prisoners either. So. 
Okay, a good debate to end mm. this episode of Today in Ohio. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Wednesday. I believe Seth Richardson will be here to talk some politics. Mm-hmm.